then responded to him, What sign can you show to us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and then you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Oh, great job, Matt. Give it up for Matt. Come on. Can you kind of lay it there with this like Monty Python-esque kind of vibe, eh? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Bring me a shrubbery. <laughs> Well, the thing about this passage right for me is this passage does not fit with my Jesus. This passage does not fit with my meek and mild and non-violent Jesus. Does anyone else feel that? That like, yes, yes, a few people, it does not fit with my Jesus. Um, and I'm wondering, the question I ask when I look at this passage is, what on earth makes Jesus, who seems to be so patient and so measured all the way through the scriptures, so angry here. I mean, the other thing that comes to mind around that is this is not like someone pushed him too far. Like, this was deeply premeditated. Like, he sits on the steps for a day, braiding a whip slowly, going, this is going to be sweet when I'm done. <laughs> like, there's something about the scripture which doesn't sit with my picture of Jesus. And so I have to wonder what is going on here. If we don't really see this behavior from Christ anywhere else in the scriptures, then what is happening here? that gets him so fired up. And to understand that, what we need to understand first is what the temple was. So the temple was the central place of the Jewish faith. This is, for the Israelites, this is the dwelling place of God. You had the outer courts, which you could enter through. You could be in the outer courts if you were a Jewish woman. And then you had the inner courts, which the men could enter into. And then you had the the inner porch where the priest could enter to, and then you had this place called the Holy of Holies, which had a big, heavy velvet curtain in that only one priest could enter into once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and make atonement for the sins of the people. And so around the, the time that this was being instituted, in Leviticus 5, which we do a lot of Leviticus in this church, so I'm really sure that you're familiar with that passage. But um, Leviticus 5, we hear about the laying down of how these sacrifices will look that people will make. So basically the idea was that if you are out of favour with God, then you can approach God with a sacrifice. The priest will go and lay it on the altar and splash some blood and some fat, and you'll be made right with God. And so one of the things that was in this is God basically set up a number of different sacrifices that could be made. And they were based on the wealth or the, um, the status of the person involved. So if you were a wealthy person, you might have a really fancy calf. And you'd bring in your fancy calf, and it would be a spotless calf because it had to be good enough for God. And you'd bring in your spotless calf, and this would be sacrificed to God. And then if you couldn't quite do a calf, well, God said, okay, I will take a fairly spotless goat. Like, you can bring me a good goat. And if not the goat, then God said, all right, a dove. But it had better be a good dove. And then for those who really had nothing to give, uh, it, was, um, it was a small amount of flour and maybe some olive oil. And so there's this kind of beautiful thing where God lays out this thing, this quite ceremonial thing that you will bring your sacrifice to the altar, but he gives options for all the people of Israel to do it. 
And what we see here in this passage where Jesus says, you have, you have turned my father's house into a market, is that the priests have formed an industry around this. A couple of thousand years later, they have formed an industry around this. So we look at maybe who's in the temple at this time. It's the Passover weekend. So you have masses of people who have come from all around Jerusalem to make these sacrifices for their guilt. And they would come into the space with what they had, whether it was their flower, their dove, their goat, or their calf. And this industry had got it really down. So what would happen is you'd walk up with your calf, as you do, and you would go to the priest and say, here is my calf, I would like to make atonement for my sins. And the priest would say, ooh, that calf looks a little weathered. I don't know if God would be happy with that calf. But we do have a gift shop right over here with some really nice calves. Why don't you go over there and you can buy a calf that is good enough for God? So they had, these people would come to make their offering. They'd say, no, 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 not good enough for God, and lead them to their own people who they could buy a good one from. And then they'd go over there and they're like, well, I've come from way out in the countryside. I actually don't have any local currency. And they're like, well, it just so happens that we have the Israeli equivalent of super lines here and they will do you a loan at generous rates. And so they'd go over there and get the money from them. Then they could purchase what they needed to atone for their sins, at which point the priest would accept it. The ruling religious industry and institution of the time had taken a sacred thing by which the people could be made right with God and they turned it into an industry that became a barrier to peace with God. And so you start to understand how angry Jesus is at this moment. That the Father had laid down this way that people could be at peace with God and then these Fancy men have come in in all their robes and they have put barrier after barrier after barrier in the way of people accessing that God. You know, there's another scripture where Jesus says that the Pharisees lay up heavy burdens upon the people, but they won't even lift a finger to help them move it. You can sense the anger, right? It's the kind of anger that I feel when I hear about the family who are trying to get home to their funeral on the island, so they take some loan from their loan shark and then they can never pay it back. They're trapped in the cycle of dead, all for the basic things of life. They've taken a sacred thing and they've made it profane. And I remember Anna and I a couple of years ago were in Jerusalem and we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, so they say, um, has the place where Jesus died, the place where his body was laid, and the place where he was resurrected, all within about 10 metres of each other, apparently. And, um, and you go into this place, and there are signs which say no tour groups, no talking, no photography, no like selling your wares here. And you walk into the place, and it's just like trinkets everywhere, and it's loud tour groups, and it's photos, and you're trying to have this sacred moment with God in these spaces. But the moment you stop for a second, some angry Orthodox priest hits you over the back of the head and moves you on. It's a place that is meant to be sacred that has been made profane. And so what I want to look at today is how this looks for us today. Because one thing we understand from 1 Corinthians is that Paul said, you are now temples of the Holy Spirit. That when Christ died, that curtain tore open and God ran out the front and slammed the door behind him. And we now understood that the Spirit of God no longer lives in temples made by man, but lives in the hearts of women and men. 
And so we are those temples. And in the same way, we've put a market in the temple. Our contemporary state religion is consumerism. And so often, our ideas from this culture which surrounds us have become intimately intertwined with those things which are meant to get us to God. So the question I want to ask today is, where have we turned the temple the temple into a market? Where has our faith, our following Jesus, turned into something driven by the principles of the market? I want to tell you three quick stories. A couple of years ago, Anna and I were in Kolkata in India, and we went to the temple of Kali. Kali is a god of war in India, and we went to this temple, and it is the craziest place. You come in, and just as you come in, there is a dying tree to your right, which women wanting to conceive a child would put money on the dying tree to be made fertile. Then you come around the border from that, and every day they slaughter 15 to 20 goats. It's like Old Testament religion. It's like crazy stuff. And you've got this pool of blood kind of halfway up your shoes the whole way through it. And we come around and then we, we turn this corner and we look through a blazing fire into the eye of Kali, which is hidden behind this kind of altar blazing in the background. It's like Indiana Jones kind of stuff. And we're looking at this eye and then we get walked around to a pool at the back and out to this idol. And, um, and then all of a sudden... A couple of hands go out, and we're like, well, what? It's like, it's time to pay. It's time to pay for this sacred experience. And we suddenly realised that this thing that was meant to be about something sacred or something religious was actually about fundraising. It was actually about something quite different. We got a tour. You get a tour, we get your money. We didn't realise it was a transaction. See, our first place where I think the, mar- the, the market enters our temple is our transactionality. The idea that everything in this world is a transaction to us these days. So much of our lives has become framed through this idea. We ask in our relationships, am I getting as much as I put in here? Is this an equal transaction that we are experiencing here? We are in a constant habit of evaluating our experiences and our purchases on whether we believe they equated to what we put in for them. To the point where you hear people Maybe at the end of a Sunday night, you've had that conversation and people are evaluating whether coming here on a Sunday was worth the two hours of their lives they put aside to be here. We're stuck in this model of transactionality, get it up, and that we evaluate everything. And if we're not careful, we fall into the trap of, the trap of believing that a faithful life requires God to uphold his end of the bargain for all those hours we spent praying and reading the Bible and being pious, that God, when are you going to deliver on my faithfulness? When are you going to come through? And grace is defined as unmerited favour. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us in that we, while we were still sinning, he came and he died for us. You see, if we merge into our temple the market idea that our relationship with God is a transaction, then God got a very bad deal in this transaction. God came to earth in the form of Jesus and died upon a cross. God gave everything, and there is literally nothing we could give that would be enough for what has already been given to us. This transaction doesn't work. There is no room for us to hold God to account 
for what he did or didn't do. We make the sacred profane when we bring the market into the temple, when we turn our relationship with God into a transaction, rather than realising we have received more than we could ever deserve. Remember, um, second story, at high school, I was um, a very motivated, very egotistical young man, um, and I've shared some of that. And, uh, and I can remember one of my goals for high school, like from like year nine, it's like, just got to get to get prefect. That's what you want, eh? That's, that's what you want, like straight to the top. And so in the back of my head, I think this narrative play. And I was like, yeah, you got to join the sports teams. You've got to be in the hockey team. You've got um, you to do choir. You've got to do theatre sports. You've got to do debating. You've got to do all the stuff. And you've got to find all the opportunities to enhance your brand and opportunity to be top dog. <laughs> and the funny thing is, right, that I, I came to faith and I started to understand that self-interest was not really the way that Jesus calls us to. But conveniently, I found another ladder to climb in, climb in Christianity. <laughs> it's like me and Dave were in this band. And I'd go along, I'd make all the phone calls for the next gig, and I'd do the networking at the gigs for the next opportunity. And we'd go along to the talent quest, and I'd go and speak at things, and it was like Scotty straight to the top. I found out that the same thing that I did in the world, I could totally do in Christianity, that there was a ladder to climb within this thing too. Our second place where the market can enter our temple is around spiritual careerism. And the idea that we are building a track record, we are building a sense of our depth with God that asserts our ego. You see, one of the key things Jesus does for us is invite us to crucify our ego by becoming lowly. He says, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Part of his ruthless critique of the Pharisees and the religious officials, he said, you are whitewashed tombs. You are beautiful tombs on the outside, but on the inside you are all rotting flesh and decay. You're playing a good game. He said, you are like a cup where the outside has been washed, but the inside has been left molding. He calls them a brood of vipers. You see, when the values of the market enter our temple, we trade in earthly careerism for building a good Christian life instead. We say we're going to build our character. We're going to build spiritual disciplines. We're going to build a prayer life. We are building a scripture habit. We are building a commitment to the margins. And all the time, the thing of Christ which we need to destabilize and dissolve our ego, we have reappropriated to inflate ourselves again with a false sense of self-righteousness. You see, Jesus did not die in order that we would be people with a more well-rounded faith. And Jesus never actually told us to build anything. He invited us to grow in relationship with him. And the thing I find really offensive about that is if Christ calls us to build something, then I can measure myself against all of you guys. Because I can build my spiritual tower and I can say my tower is taller than yours. 
Or I can build the depths of my prayer life and I can say it is deeper than yours. But if I'm not called to build, but only to grow in relationship with Christ, then none of us can say that we are any further or any better than one another, right? That it doesn't, Christ does not offer anything to our ego. You cannot clock Christianity. You can't. This is not a game you can clock. This is not something you can work out. You get to one depth of knowing God and you realize you know nothing. And then you get to another depth of knowing God and you feel really good about yourself and you realize again, I know nothing. There is glory unto glory unto glory unto glory of knowing God. And the moment we think we've worked it out and it starts to stroke our ego a little and we feel like we're building a good Christian curriculum vitae, we realize we don't know shit. And again and again and again it happens. You cannot clock Christianity. We make the sacred profane when we bring the market into the temple when we turn our relationship with God into another means by which we build ego, career, and status. In uh, our community, the Cuba chapter, um, there is not a lot of private space. So you basically have your room and then everybody's space. And what I've noticed is that this results in all of us kind of creating our um, own little kind of fortresses of safety and they're not spaces but they're funny little things so like the other day I reached for some peanut butter and Andy said that is my peanut butter <laughs> it's a little fortress in a can and, uh, and I had this set of like mugs that I've collected from all around the world and I'm like you can touch anything but if you touch my mugs I will kill you <laughs> We build these little things, you know, that hold our individuality, our individuality and our identity together. Um, so often, when we find ourselves in a room full of people like this, we need to make ways of asserting to ourselves that there is something different about us from everybody else. You know, our third place where the market enters the temple is individualism. It's one of the core tenets of this capitalist consumer religion that we live among is the idea that I must be an individual at all costs. Do not take my individuality away from me. And one of the interesting things, if you just break down that word individualization, what do you have in it? You have you have division. I need to separate myself from another and you have dualism. To cre- I need to create a clear distinction and opposition between you and I. In essence, individualism is to separate myself from you and then to define myself in contrast to you. And a few things this does is it means I have to create an other. I have to create an other out there. I have to create categories. I have to create a rich, a poor, a conservative, a progressive because I don't know who I am if I do not create an other It means I have to separate myself from them by race, by class, by gender, by religion, by belief. And it means I have to define myself always in contrast to another person. And you kind of become this incredibly fragile person when you live in that way. Because ultimately your sense of self ends up only defined by what you wear, what tribe you roll with, and who you vote for every four years. And it's a scary, lonely, fragile place to live from. You can see the loneliness and destruction this creates on a personal and societal level. 
And in our faith, when we bring this market value of individualism into our temple, what it creates is, this is my faith, how dare you judge me? That is personal to me. How dare you cross the line into that space? But that's actually not what Jesus invited us to. And this may be one of the most offensive things that we could believe as Christians in the world we currently live in. That to be a Christian, it means your decisions are not your decisions. They are our decisions. That means that how you spend your money is not your spending. It's our spending. How you treat your partner or your kids is not your business, it's our business. What you do with your body is not your business, that's a controversial one at the moment, it's our business. Whether you're praying is our business. And if that grates on you hard, then I think it's a good moment to consider what this this, this consumerist religion has spoken to us about the value of the individual because none of us in history have believed this as strongly as we believe it right now. You see, Jesus invites us to erode our artificial definitions of self. Those things which are hinged to the most fragile things of the clothes that we wear, of the business that we work for, of the particular, particular theological position we hold, of the party we vote for, Jesus wants to erode that. Whatever you align with, Jesus is not it. Jesus is not left-wing. Jesus is not right-wing. He does not fit your categories. Your ability to grow a relationship with Christ will be equal to your willingness to dissolve the part of you that wants to define yourself in opposition to others. You see, Jesus invites us to an incredible unification where we put down these fragile identities and eventually our sole identity marker is in reference to him and to no one else. And that's a, that's a full-on thought. And if you look at the early church, they were defined by disintegrated boundaries. You know, it says, Paul said, you are neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. Neither race nor class will be your identity. The disintegration of economic divisions, we hear in Acts 2, that everything they have, they shared and they gave away to one another. We make the sacred profane when we bring the market into the temple, when we turn our relationship with God into another means by which we assert our individualism. So if you're like me, you hear those three things and it doesn't actually offer you a lot of hope. (laughs) Because I think we are all invested in these things. eh? Like, would you agree with me that the market is in the temple? The market is in the temple, eh? The market is in this temple for me. We are deeply compromised. I am allied to two religions. The state religion of consumerism and the one I profess to follow, Jesus. We have made a hybrid Christianity. We have turned God into the cosmic slot machine through transactionality. We have used God as a means by which to fortify our ego rather than to pull it apart. We have traded identity in Christ instead for opposition to the other. But this is the hope, is that Jesus is the one who clears the temple. 
Jesus is the one who drives the moneylenders, the priests, who drives the gift shop, the loan sharks, out of the temple. It is not on us. It is Jesus who drives out the corrupt religious officials. It is Jesus who drives out the loan sharks and the moneylenders. It is Jesus who returns the temple to what it is meant to be, a house for the Father. It is Jesus who offers us freedom and cleansing from our hopeless desire to make everything a transaction. It is Jesus who crucifies our ego and helps us to find the heart of our faith is in giving our lives away. It is Jesus who dissolves our individualism and teaches us to belong to him. And so what we're going to do here is um, enter into a different kind of worship from what we've done here before. I'm going to lead you guys on a guided meditation and what we're going to do is spend some time in the temple of our hearts. And, um, and we're going to invite Christ into that place. How does that sound?